Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Missouri lawmakers are getting closer to finishing the budgetary process, and there's a lot of disagreement within the House between Republicans and Democrats over what the state's financial priorities should be. On the latest episode of Politically Speaking, Democratic State Representative Maggie Nuremberg of Clay County talks about where her party believes the state should be spending money, and she also talks about key education bills that are moving through the legislature. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws that they are balanced and they affect everybody equally. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, in North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. We gotta find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't wanna leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum, joining me in Jefferson City. She covers state government and politics for St. Louis Public Radio. Sarah Kellogg. And a first-time guest representing the 15th House District, which takes in a portion of scenic and beautiful Clay County, Missouri. Our guest today is... Maggie Nurnburn. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, before we dive into the many issues that are, are gripping the Missouri legislature, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got involved in politics, and kind of what you were doing before you decided to enter this wild and wacky world of the Missouri legislature. Wild and wacky it is. Well, I am just starting my third session, or I guess halfway through my my third session, I decided to get into politics, honestly, um, after just watching what was happening here and, and feeling like I was sitting on the sidelines and, and not able to really um, advocate for my family, for my students, for public education in the way that I wanted to. So I actually got my start as an intern in the Senate back in 2006. I interned for Senator Chuck Gross, who those who are familiar with your show um, probably remember Chuck well. He was chair of Appropriations Committee. And I continued to, you know, follow Missouri politics closely um, as I decided that I didn't want to enter this world and went into the classroom and decided to be a teacher. So I was able to teach for 13 years. I uh, served in the Peace Corps for a couple of years in Ecuador. Um, I am very proud to be a mom of three kids and have three young boys. So they keep me um, very active. And I feel like it's great training to being here in the state house. Um, and, you know, I've really enjoyed this work. I it, it's it's tough. It's a roller coaster at all times. But I feel like, honestly, between being a high school teacher and a mom to three kids, I'm, I'm well equipped uh, to handle the, the chaos and madness that comes our way. So Clay County, I think, has become more Democratic in recent years. Yeah, it sure has. A, there's a Democratic state senator. 
There are multiple state representatives. Why do you think that there has been a shift? Because when you were interning in the Senate in 2006, the state senator, Luann Ridgway, was a Republican, and that seat was not especially competitive uh, up until, like, Lauren Arthur won the special election. What do you what do you think happened there? And, you know, I honestly would say just because Ryan Sylvie was in that spot before her, um, we probably could have flipped it before that even. But he was, you know, a, definitely a moderate. Um, you know, when you look around our community, we are kind of the the epitome of the growing um, just middle class, working class families. And Clay Counties, I, I'm from Clay County. I went to Smithville um, Public Schools, K-12. And I honestly, I see the kind of the same values that I grew up with, the same values that surround me today and the community around us today. And I don't honestly think a lot has changed. I think what's changed is where it in kind of the political shift of the Republican Party. And so that's the thing that I think is striking. Um, you know, we are and, and continue to be, I, I represent a fairly 50-50 district. Um, and again, we're we want moderation. Um, and and people around my area are just tired of the extremism and the extreme rhetoric that they're seeing in Jefferson City. And so, you know, I I give, you know, incredible credit to Lauren for flipping that seat. She worked very hard in that special election. Um, and, and has done a tremendous job. And she certainly helped elect those of us in the state house. So I think there has been, um, we we certainly have benefited from her leadership over on the Senate side. And I think it's helped us um, win those state house races as well. You're in the middle of your third session, as you kind of said, what have been your general impressions of the Missouri House so far? Well, what I can say is that I feel like this year and, and certainly starting off, um, I was very happy just to see the change in dynamic in the House leadership. You know, I think anybody who followed and, and certainly my first term, um, the, the palpable tension between Republican leadership um, created just a very tense environment, I think, for everybody, um, not just in the Republican caucus, but certainly for us as well. And, in you know, I served, um, I'm on my third year now serving on the House Elementary and Secondary Education Committee. And you could even see how that committee was run under uh, former state rep Chuck Basie. And there was just such a negative vibe um, and and really attacks against everything related to public education. So you go from that shift to now, and and I feel like there is some better communication, certainly from House leadership this year. Um, But again, I I, I think there is that um, push to bring some bipartisan legislation forward. And I've been really fortunate to work on some of that. And honestly, this year under uh, now Brad Pollitt as committee chair, we've actually talked about some good education bills. So that's been really, I've been very happy to see that. Um, you know, it's a roller coaster. Every year is a roller coaster. There's always different things that, you know, that that are at the forefront. But overall, um, like I say, I've been very happy to be here. And I'm even more happy this year feeling like I'm, I'm actually able to work on some substantial policy as well and move that forward. Yeah, there were expectations at the beginning of session that the leaders of the House would conduct business in a less acrimonious way. And it seems that that predictions come true, you think? You know, for the first for the most part, there certainly have been plenty of tension, um, even right now, surrounding the controversies with uh, the language that Doug Ritchie added to every single budget bill that was against diversity, equity, inclusion. And so um, we've certainly had our hiccups along the way, right? Um, I think, especially on House Bill 300 and, and some of the, the previous question motions that were raised, um, there certainly have been hiccups. I, I don't want to say that, but I'd say in general, um, I've been very pleased with the increased communication and just the spirit of making sure if if the minority party wants to weigh in, that we do have a way and, and our voices are heard. 
And we're going to get to that language. Uh, don't worry. Uh, but kind of speaking of you are on the House Budget Committee. What were your impressions about how Republicans handled this process in the House so far? Well, it was very interesting to be probably um, during the state of the state speech to be some of the first to to go to our feet and applaud the governor's really, I, I felt like very strategic plans to invest long term in Missouri. And so we continue, you know, to have it and try to look strategically at all the federal funds and how we can make those long-term investments. And so I was very pleased in his plans to really examine how we are investing in early childhood education as well. So both through supporting uh, increases to the childcare subsidies, but also that expanded pre-K. So I was very uh, pleased to see all of those recommendations. And then to go into the House budget committee and over and over again here that we simply do not want to spend these funds this way, that this isn't the government's role, um, even though study after study just shows the incredible return on investment, if nothing else, in, in investing early in kids. And, and we know that those are the most important years of their life. Um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of finger pointing about how um, well students are doing or not doing in the state of Missouri right now. And, and I think those those criticisms are fair. However, we have got to look at the lack of investments in education. And I think all of that, you know, it's a direct line of correlation. Um, another thing that I think was noticeable about the, the House budgetary process is that House Budget Chairman Cody Smith took out, I think, about $860 million that Parson wanted for I-70 and took it completely out of the main budget bills. He says he's going to put it into a separate budget bill. But I think that that money for I-70 is going to get reduced because a lot of Southwest Missouri lawmakers want general revenue to help I-44. Yeah. And I, yeah, I was uh, really shocked to see that. I think over and over again, everybody understands that I-70 as the major corridor through our state, we have to invest in it. And we are going to lose jobs in Kansas City and Columbia and St. Louis if we don't do that. The congestion there is just unbelievable. Obviously, those of us who travel that um, know the frustrations and honestly the dangers of of what you know we experience and we see Missourians experience every day um, because we have not invested in that road. And so, you know, I remain hopeful um, that over on the Senate side, that they're going to be the voice of reason and, and kind of the, the adults in the room and make sure that we're making those historic investments. Um, but, you know, we'll have to wait and see. We're, we're still have several weeks in this process. We'll see what happens. So kind of speaking of the Senate, uh, Senator Lincoln Huff has said not only does he want to restore that money for I-70, he also wants to go above and beyond what the governor recommends and invest that money in I-44. You know, he's told me that himself. Thoughts on that decision, not only for I-70, but also 44? Absolutely. I, I think um, the plans have been out there for quite some time, and I think we should. Again, when we look at what how much money is in the state treasury, um, yesterday I was I was taking a look and we had about $17 billion sitting there. Obviously, a lot of those are earmarked for different reasons, but still the amount of general revenue we have and the amount of revenue that we can pull down from the, all the federal infrastructure funds as well. And so I think the time is now. If, if we're not making these investments now, Missouri will lose out on jobs. And, um, you know, I think that's what it all boils down to. So a lot of times when I'm looking at these things, I, you know, I have to ask myself if, if not now, when, and never again, are we going to see this amount of revenue? And I, I'm, I'm grateful that, uh, you know, Senator Huff is, is willing and, um, eager to make those historic investments in the state. So, so let's get back to what you were referring to earlier, um, the move that made the most headlines last week was when Representative Ritchie, who 
is, I believe, also from Clay County, although sure a, 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 va- a, a vastly more Republican part of, of Clay County. Uh, he, he, he put amendments forward that would bar any state funding going towards staffing, vendors, consultants, or programs associated with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Why, why were Democrats so opposed to what Representative Ritchie was trying to do? Well, for numerous reasons. First of all, none of this, none of the language was ever vetted in committee. And I think that was what was so problematic about it is that we actually didn't understand fully the impact to all of our state departments, agencies, all the contracts that we hold in the state. Right. And so any, any change that is that substantial to not vet in a public hearing, I find troubling and problematic. Now, Obviously, Representative Richie and others, the I, I, you know, the extreme conservatives have on their priority an absolute attack on anything that they consider woke right now. So this war on woke now is going after everything from um, obviously K twelve for for some time that we're you know indoctrinating children to higher education now to what can and can't be taught in medical school and other healthcare related um, professional studies. Um, it has been troubling to say the least. And my big concern with with his attacks specifically on diversity, equity, and inclusion is that this is some of the most important work that we're doing today in the state. You know, my belief in, in obviously being an educator for 13 years, I worked in very different settings. I worked, um, I you know, in the inner city and in for five years at one of our charter schools in Kansas City, one of the most segregated schools in the state. It was about 95% African-American. I grew up in a very segregated white community up in Smithville. And then I um, live and taught in a community that's one of the most diverse communities in the state. So North Kansas City High School is the most ethnically, um, racially, and socioeconomically diverse high school in the entire state, right? So I recognize how important this work is to make sure that everybody feels included, welcomed in that learning environment. When we expand that statewide, I believe that this is the work that builds a better Missouri. Diversity, equity, and inclusion builds a better Missouri by making sure everybody has a place, everybody has a voice here. And that's what I see, um, you know, obviously is so important. But I, you know, uh, I think some of my um, Democratic colleagues, specifically my colleagues in the Black Caucus, said it the best last week and obviously very powerful moments on the floor. So interestingly, someone sent me a tweet a couple of days ago about how the Department of Social Services was engaging in civil rights and diversity training. And I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on for a second. Robert Nodell, who's the acting director of DSS, is a very astute political person. He used to run campaigns for Republicans. It doesn't seem like that was an accident. And it signals to me that Governor Parson is not on board with what Representative Ritchie wants to do. So am I am I a conspiracy yeah, I think, theorist here or am I, am I on to something? No, I think you're spot on. And, you know, uh, Director Adele was one of them that expressed some very uh, grave concerns about the implications of this. I think he was one of the first that really started coming forward and recognizing how dangerous this language really was. I thought it was interesting as well. You know, there was a, um, a tweet about a essentially a di- some sort of diversity program happening within youth services um, as well that I that I saw that was shared. I mean, over and over again, it doesn't matter what facet of government, every facet is recognizing the importance of making sure that everybody is included, that everybody's valued. And that's what I see is so important about this work. 
Another big change that you've spoken a lot about was the removal of state funding for public libraries. I just kind of want your overall thoughts on this move. I'm sure I'll have a follow up. Well, as I said last week, I thought it was interesting that, you know, I sit on that subcommittee um, for general administrations and, and that money currently is housed within the Secretary of State. So we heard these budgets not once did a single member of that subcommittee, not once did a single member of the big budget committee ever express the desire to put forth an amendment to strip public funding, state aid to, to our public libraries. And, you know, it was with one fell swoop, essentially, that budget chair, uh, Cody Smith, decided to remove all state aid to public libraries. And I, um, obviously, as a big fan of public libraries, you know, this was something that I took quite personally, just because I recognize the value in my own family for my own kids. But more importantly, in our rural communities, especially, public libraries is the one gathering spot. It's the one spot where folks can get access to, you know, high-speed internet, and they can apply for jobs. They can seek out resources to better themselves. Um, and and that impact, that cut to the state aid is going to impact the rural communities um, much more than my own community. And so I, again, am thankful that we have a state Senate that I am very confident that that full funding will be restored. And, and Smith cited the lawsuit that is going on on the bill that is causing libraries to pull off the shelves, you know, many calling it a book ban. You know, there's that. There's this DEI language. Last year, there was the language regarding uh, vaccine. COVID, COVID mitigation. Yes. or Yeah. And so it just seems, and maybe you can talk on this, you know, why do you feel like there's maybe a little bit more legislating within the budget than have been maybe in years past? Well, I feel... Um, when there's 163 House members and voices get drowned out, you know, quite frequently just because of our sheer number, I think those who are um, on the far right recognize that the budget is the place to make their voices heard. And they've decided that that is their, the, the tool they are going to use, that they are going to legislate through the budget. Again, you know, just the, over the last couple of years and that, you know, I'm, I'm new as a member of, of this body, but what we keep seeing is that essentially it's the Senate writing the budget because the House fails to do so. And we spend so much time on these, essentially these cultural, culture war wedge issues and not actually talking about the real money. I mean, so much of our time on the state budget was not spent talking about how we're investing state resources. It was talking about um, this war on woke. Um, and I just, it's so frustrating because I really wanted to talk about what we can do again to make historic investments in not just our state, but in Missourians and our state workers and making sure that we really are moving Missouri forward. We didn't, we failed to do that in the, in the house budget committee and certainly on the floor um, as we were amending those budget bills. You know, either through what Senator Huff has told me or told other outlets, you know, there is an indication that the Senate is going to reverse a lot of what the House did. And, you know, this happened last year, too. A lot of times, you know, I repeatedly uh, then appropriation chair Hageman would say governor, governor over House, you know, repeatedly, you know, but by passing stingier budgets, is the House essentially abdicating power over the budget to the Senate? That's certainly what it seems like. And, you know, historically, the House, you know, the budget starts in the House and the House you know, really is it has the first go of it. This isn't happening anymore. Again, we are spending so much of our time really diverting our time um, in, in talking about these uh, ridiculous issues instead of talking about the state budget. And so I'm I'm thankful for the leadership of already of Senator Huff on this. I think he really is going to restore all the cuts and really go back to the governor's plan. And it's interesting being a Democrat advocating for a conservative governor's budget plan, but that's that's the state we find ourselves in right now. And um, I, I think 
even the governor's plan, I, I I really think that we can do more in a lot of areas, both in infrastructure, in early childhood, um, in just social services as well, and increasing specifically state pay for those workers who are really on the front lines and some of the toughest jobs in the state, for example, and direct care providers. Um, so I'm hopeful that the Senate will even go above and beyond. Again, we are, we're sitting on a lot of money, a historic amount of money in the Treasury right now. And I go back to, if not now, when. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Maggie Nuremberg. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Maggie Nuremberg. She is a Democrat from Clay County representing the 15th District in the Missouri House. So let's talk about education. That seems to be your wheelhouse because I guess in a prior life, as you mentioned before, you you were a teacher. What are your thoughts about the open enrollment bill that passed the House? Sarah, if I'm not mistaken, the, the bill was heard in the Senate. What What's kind of your thoughts about that legislation? Well, first of all, what I respect about Brad Pollitt is that he actually has experience in this area, right? He worked um, three decades in, in public education and as a superintendent for Sedalia um, schools as well. So Brad has done a really, um, I, I commend him and really listening to a lot of our concerns and incorporating those concerns into his legislation. And as he would say, his bill today is like nothing with, that he originally drafted. Um, however, I think open enrollment is wrong for Missouri because even with the changes that we've made to this legislation, if passed, this would continue to segregate schools and communities by race, by class, and by ability. What do you make of the argument that if you happen to live within the geographical boundaries of a school district, which is not performing well, you should have the ability to send your child to a school that is performing better that's close by. I mean, that's the entire philosophical argument behind sure. this. And it's yeah. a, and I got to be honest, it's a pretty compelling argument when it's in a vacuum like that. Okay, but in in my response to that is but what happens when all of that money follows the student? What happens to the rest of the kids that are left in that district? And that continues to be my concern about this is that the only families that are going to be able to to navigate this additional level of bureaucracy are going to be those that already have the resources and the means to move their kids or send their kids to private schools if they wish. And so the, those who are going to be most adversely affected by this are those who already are struggling. And so I I think one of the fundamental flaws with this piece of legislation is that the state portion will follow the kid and school systems that are doing well today are going to continue to do well. But those who have been struggling and those not just, and I'm not talking about um, just our urban schools who've been struggling. I'm really talking about some of our smallest rural schools as well. They will not be able to keep their doors open. Um, you know, this absolutely will cause consolidation. This absolutely will adversely affect those um, in the urban core who are really trying their best to make sure that they have the resources to educate students well. And I have seen this from our charter schools, and um, now we have over 20 years of, of data on how our charter schools have been doing, and we can look at the families that are in those schools and in those systems. It's the families that can navigate that level of bureaucracy. There's an incredible level of bureaucracy in that you have to apply early, you got to get in all your paperwork, et cetera, et cetera. Again, it's only those families that have the resources to do that um, are going to do that. And I think you kind of alluded to this earlier. It's pretty clear that a lot of public schools, and, and, and I would say schools of 
all performances have been struggling over the last year or two uh, as they get out of the COVID-19 pandemic. I think that's not only seen the data, but as a father of three kids, including two that go to public schools, um, I've heard all sorts of anecdotal evidence that kids are having a really difficult time readjusting to going back to in-person schooling. So separate from the open enrollment question, what would you want to see the state do to kind of normalize the situation at these school districts and get into a place where it's more like 2019, 2018, and not in this post-COVID world that we're in right now? Well, first of all, I think we do have to look at our investments in public education. And, you know, Republicans love to say that they've been fully funding education. But when we look at how much money we're putting into public education today in the formula versus 2006, we are actually adjusted for inflation investing at levels less than 2006. So you think about all the challenges that we've had. Our I think we're up to 25% now of our school districts in the state are on a four-day week. How is that good for kids? And how is that good for kids' learning achievement and growth, right? I think we can look at our turnover for teachers right now. And I was flabbergasted. I knew the numbers were high. But when, um, and you know, as Desi was before us, there some of the numbers now are in within five years, it's 50% turnover of teachers. Within five years, 50% of teachers are gone. So we have got to do a better job of recruiting folks into the classroom, but supporting and retaining teachers. And I think that's the problem. I, I, I think we can look at those trends and what's happening. You know, when you're constantly with um, new teachers who are just trying to figure out how to practice their craft, how, how, to, how to really be a, a, a teacher, that takes several years. It takes several years in any job to figure out how to do your job well. And you're so overworked um, and, and have faced so many burdens that you're simply gone in a few years. And that's what I find frustrating. So I, I do think there's a lot into teacher pay, doing what we can to increase teacher pay. So we really are getting the best and brightest into our classrooms. And I'm not saying that they, we don't have some of the best and brightest in our classrooms today, but I'm saying we have to do a better job of making sure that that we have new teachers entering the classroom. And once they get in the classroom, that we're, we're supporting them. Um, and, and, and with all of that, you know, wraparound services that teachers really need to be successful. Now, I can also say, you know, as a mom to a third grader who has never experienced a school year without implications of COVID, right? He left his kindergarten year um, in in March, as we all did, and, and went home. There's been a lot of challenges as as you know, trying to to readjust to to what is normal. And so, I think one of the adverse um, consequences of COVID was simply the loss of the that social interaction, and you know, it, it's hard. It's hard to be um, in back in a classroom every day um, for kids who, you know, I think the secondary students, especially, that was a hard adjustment to get back to to go in every day. Um, but I do think kids learn best in the classroom. I think kids learn best um, when technology is used really as a, as a tool um, and not as a substitute for the teacher in the classroom. And so all of those things I think are are in play today. You know, this open enrollment bill narrowly passed in the House. You know, do you expect to have much of a chance of passing in the Senate or do you think it could run into even bipartisan opposition? You know, it's going to be interesting as all of those negotiations play out. And obviously, I'm not over on the Senate side, so I don't know exactly what those conversations are like today. But we do have some really good pieces of of 
policy moving surrounding education. And so I do think there's probably going to be a, a time and a place for some compromises there. Um, what are we doing more to invest in the foundation formula, specifically surrounding students? Um, it takes more resources to educate students who are in poverty. And so I think there's some really important calculations that need to be or, or modifications to the formula today that can be made for that. Um, so we'll see. You know, it's going to be one of those we will wait and see. The interesting thing about this is this is certainly not one of those, you know, a bipartisan or, you know, a split party divide here. Um, there are folks in every community, every walk of life that have concerns about open enrollment. To change topics, the Senate has set the House two bills that revolve around transgender rights. The first restricts transgender health care for minors, while the other bars student-athletes from competing in a sport that aligns with their gender identity. What are your expectations for when those bills make it to the House? Well, I honestly, I think there's a lot of just nervous apprehension, anxiety surrounding this right now, how these conversations are, are going to go because they haven't gone well in the past. And I hate that we are um, continue to really dissect kids' lives on the House floor and there will be attack after attack against these kids. And that's some of the most um, painful debates that we've had on the floor have been surrounding, um, it, you know, simply attacks on the LGBTQ community. And so... I am not looking forward to those conversations, um, but at the same time, I, I can tell you that our caucus is going to stand and will continue to be allies um, to show the trans community specifically that we see you, that you are valued, that we care about you. And I hope that we have some room here for um, a little bit of negotiation too. You know, obviously we're stuck with what the Senate sent us right now, but um, man, I, I I wish we could have a delayed. Um, at, at this point, I think probably our only thing uh, that we can do is really delay the um, effective date of that legislation. You speak on negotiations. You know, some Republicans have criticized the Senate for putting a four-year sunset on the gender-affirming health care bill, as well as the trans uh, athlete bill. You know, it also exempts minors who are going through hormonal therapy or puberty blockers who are currently have those prescriptions. You know, do you think the House could make the bills more restrictive or is the House really going to look at how long the Senate spent to get to this compromise and not want to risk it? I'm curious kind of your thoughts on whether or not the House thinks it's going to be worth to change it. Yeah, because I, I think our conservative members are going to say that this didn't go far enough, right? And they're going to push um, for what I would say are even more egregious bans in, in you know, punishing kids. Um, I don't know. I, I think that I, I do not know how this is going to play out. Um, so it, it's definitely going to be a wait and see. And unfortunately, I, I think that that could happen as soon as next week. It's been interesting to hear Republicans say that these two bills are major priorities for them. Their 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 rationale is constituents want these bills. And if that's actually true, and a lot of these Republicans represent rural counties and exurban counties, what do you think needs to be done to make the LGBTQ community like more welcomed in those communities. Yeah. And I asked um, the folks who were sponsoring amendments, for example, last year, you know, have you sat down with any of these families? Have you talked? Um, have you talked with them? Have you listened to their stories and their why? And over and over again, I heard no. And that's the part that's most disappointing is that you're trying to legislate something out of out of fear and simply an unknowing um, and, and I understand being uncomfortable with something you don't understand, but take a moment to educate yourself, take a moment to, to listen to their stories. And I just find it so maddening that we had more bills targeting trans 
the trans community than we had trans athletes even playing sports in this state and how much time and state resources we've spent targeting this community is just absolutely frustrating. And it's just been a sad time for Missouri. Um, we have real issues in the state and that's what I would love us to be talking about. What can we do to, um, to really address the escalating gun violence in our state? What can we do to make sure that um, Missourians aren't flocking to other areas of the country, um, that they don't feel welcomed here? Um, that, you know, it, so anyway, we we have lots of issues that we could be talking about, but yet we, we get stuck on these wedge issues that really are not important to the vast majority of Missourians. I would love to get back to those kitchen table topics. So in the last couple of minutes we have, I do have a couple political questions because this is politically speaking. So there has to be some politics involved. Uh, Go for it. You you have you have announced that you are running to succeed Senator Lauren Arthur in the 17th senatorial district. Why did you decide to jump into that race considering you could have hypothetically ran for two more terms in the house? Well, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but I really commend Lauren for just doing an outstanding job in the Senate. Obviously, there's, you know, just been 10 uh, Democratic senators over there, but she's carried a tremendous amount of weight on her shoulders and has done a heck of a job negotiating policy. And I recognize how important that leadership really is over there. And, you know, as as you all know, there's 163 members in the House, and it's really hard to get a lot of our priorities done um, as Democrats. Thankfully, I've, I've been successful. You know, this year I've I've had several bills um, that are getting passed out and moving moving along in the process, and so that's been really great. However, I recognize the impact in the Senate is is, you know, obviously above and beyond. I, um, as I mentioned before, I started as an intern in the Senate, and um, I started as an intern on that, you know, for. Chuck Gross, as he was sharing appropriations, I recognize how important the appropriations processes over there um, as we fail to write the budget over here on the House side. And so I'm eager to be part of that work over on the Senate side. The seat, I think, is, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, it's much more Democratic leaning than it was 20 years ago. And even after redistricting, I've actually talked to a couple of Republicans from Clay County. Uh, it's actually, I think, got a slightly more Democratic, but it's not like overwhelmingly Democratic. So it's possible that this could be a pretty competitive race and the Republicans could put forth a serious candidate that could raise serious money. What's kind of your expectations about how competitive this contest could be for you? You know, it is it certainly is going to be a competitive seat. Um, we have it is it has become more Democratic. They essentially the um, area that was more red was kind of lobbed off um, into that 24th senatorial district, which is incredibly wide. And I think it's 21st. 20, the 21st. Yes. Yes. yes 21st. Um, so that area of, of the Senate district is no longer part of it. And so the district is much more Democratic leaning now. However, if there's an open Senate seat, we know that the other side is going to pour in tremendous amount of money. Um, I'm, I think, you know, at this time, I, I really am the right candidate for it. Just again, speaking to being a voice of moderation, I, I recognize that that's what our community wants. Um, they want somebody and they want a, a leader in the Senate who's really going to be a voice for the community and focus on the issues that matter to them and not get caught up in this hyperbolic um, political rhetoric. When I was talking with uh, Missouri Democratic Party Chairman Russ Carnahan a couple of weeks ago, one of the things he really harped on is this idea of kind of this team mentality and that like whoever is running for governor should be helpful to people who are running for other statewide offices and state Senate seats. But your party doesn't have a Democratic candidate for governor right now. And I think that 
whoever is leading your ticket could be influential to people like you. So this is a roundabout way of saying, who do you think should run for governor for your party? And how important do you think that is going to be for for candidates like yourself? I've got to say, we have some tremendous Democratic leaders right now in the state house. And I am just in awe of the work that they're doing every day. Um, they've really stood up and and they've been that voice of reason so many times when we've gotten stuck in these ridiculous debates. And um, obviously, I have tremendous respect for minority leader Crystal Quaid. I've been just impressed with how she not only leads our caucus, but really is able to negotiate and put priorities of Missourians first. I think she would be a tremendous, not not just candidate, I think she would be a tremendous first uh, woman governor of the state of Missouri. That's a tough, it's a tough ask for anybody to put, you know, so much on on hold as they campaign for that seat. However, we recognize that we have to be out there. We be, you know, we need to make sure that we are, are sending a message um, that we are united and we're going to stand up for Missourians. And I, I, I guess if uh, Representative Quaid doesn't want to run, you know, I, I did a Twitter poll, I think, in July of which Missouri politician should be memed into prominence. And the winner of that was Senator Lauren Arthur. So maybe Senator Arthur, since she's not can't run for the Senate anymore, could ride her meme ability to the uh, statewide office or something. I like tell that. you what, there's if if she set her mind to it, I, I tell you what, there, I don't think there's anything that she couldn't accomplish. Uh, we will leave it at that. And thank you so much for your time, Representative. We really appreciate it, politically speaking. Yeah, really appreciate it being on. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can read all of our political coverage at stlpr.org. And, and Representative, where could we find you on the Internet where you want to be found? Sure. So on social media, you can find me at Maggie for Mo. My website's maggieformo.com. And uh, always you can connect me through our office here in the house. I am the only representative Nurnburn, so it shouldn't be hard to find. Uh, very good. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. From St. Louis Public Radio, this is Politically Speaking. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.